asking Savior. I love that line. Thank you, John. Appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you for the good singing, everybody, this morning. Anybody here ever ask God any questions? O only everybody, probably. Uh, it's not unusual to ask God questions about things that we don't understand. We find questions for God in the Psalms, a lot of questions for God in the book of Job, and in many other places in Scripture, and certainly in our own experience. Like any loving father, God welcomes questions from his children. However, there is a difference between reverently asking God questions and the folly of making accusations against God's character, God's motives, and God's wisdom. The Apostle Paul anticipates that the truth of God's sovereign electing grace that he writes about in Romans 9 will provoke some questions. Uh, God, the doctrine of God's uh, sovereign electing grace goes like this. Out of the whole mass of sinful, rebellious, and undeserving humanity, God has sovereignly chosen some, though not all, to be the recipients of eternal life. His choice is based not upon anything good or deserving which he sees in those he chooses, but upon reasons holy within himself. This is the doctrine of unconditional election as we find it taught in the Scriptures. And even though clearly biblical, it's hard for the human mind to accept. And it's ridiculed by some and questioned by many more. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning. And in verses 14 through 24, we find that Paul is anticipating some questions, yea, even accusations directed against God in response to this unconditional election that he just laid out in the previous passage in the previous verses starting in verse 9 verse 14 it says what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with god certainly not for he says to moses i will have mercy on whomever i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whomever i will have compassion so then it is not of him who wills, nor of, of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who's resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Let me say that again. Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to take one vessel, make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. We find in this passage of Scripture a couple of questioning accusations raised against God, and we see the response that the Apostle Paul uh, pens under the direction of the Holy Spirit towards those questions. And we find that in response to these questions, we see that we need to be careful about the kind of an attitude that we have in raising questions directed towards the God of the universe. And the bottom line of all this, we need to let God be God. We need to recognize that He is God and we are not. We find the first question raised here uh, that Paul anticipates is in verse 14, and that's, is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unrighteous? Is God doing something wrong? And we find that he anticipates this question because it's prompted by the teaching of the previous verses. A few weeks ago, we saw how God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And then when it came down to Jacob and Esau, he chose Jacob and not Esau even before they were born. Some would tell us that God has to treat everybody alike. And if God doesn't treat everybody alike, then God is unfair, unjust, and unrighteous. Paul anticipates this question, is God unrighteous? And if you notice his answer here, it, it says, certainly, certainly not. If you have the old King James, it says, God forbid. The term that he uses here is the, the strongest negative in the Greek language. Uh, it's, not a, it's not literally translated, God forbid, but it is that very strong negative, absolutely not. May it never be. Impossible. It can't happen. It just isn't so. Imagine the strongest negative that you can come up with, and if you have any thought whatsoever of God being unrighteous or doing anything wrong, it is impossible. It can't happen. Our God is not unrighteous. He is perfectly and absolutely righteous. We find that's the, the declaration in Scripture in Psalm 7, verse 9. It says, The righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Psalm 48, 10, Your right hand is full of righteousness. Psalm Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things. Psalm 119, verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And we could go on and on for the rest of the hour, directing you to different passages of Scripture that declare and illustrate the fact that our God is a righteous God. He is right. He is absolutely right. He never does anything wrong. His motives are perfect. His decisions are, are without error or without wavering. Our God is absolutely right in everything that he does. And to suggest that there's some fault or some folly in God is absolutely ridiculous because our God is perfect. He is absolutely perfect. We find as we move on in, in answering, continuing to answer the question, 
Paul makes a, a declaration or points to a declaration of God's sovereignty. First of all, he points back to the uh, book of Exodus where God spoke to Moses. And God told Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So that it's not of him who wills or not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Salvation's not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but salvation is of God who shows mercy. Down in verse 18 of that, that chapter we just read, God says, therefore, or Paul says about God, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And this is a, two of the strongest declarations of God's sovereignty you're going to find in Scripture. And the first one, where he speaks to Moses, and he says, I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. He's speaking to Moses in connection with the uh, Israelites who had just been worshiping the golden calf. If you go back to Exodus 32 and Exodus chapter 3, you read the account of how when God has Moses up on Mount Sinai and he's giving Moses the law, he's giving Moses the Ten Commandments, writing on tablets of stone. Uh, he's up there for 40 days. And the Israelites down in the camp begin to think, well, God, you know, God's abandoned us. Moses has abandoned us. And they go to, to Aaron, they say, we need, we need a God we can see. And so Aaron said, well, take off your jewelry. And, and, and he takes their jewelry, their earrings, and he, he takes them, melts them down, and he makes for them a golden calf. And, and they begin to worship this golden calf in, in disgusting and even immoral fashion. And just the, the worship of it, period, was disgusting and an abomination to a holy God. And Moses comes down from the, the mountain and he, he smashes the Ten Commandments and grinds them up and he makes the people drink the, drink the leftovers from that. And we find that, that 3,000 of the Israelites are slain in connection with this idol worshiping that's done. Now, in connection with this, God also says to Moses, he said, I'll wipe them all out. I'll kill them all, and I will start over with you. And Moses' response to God is that, uh, well, well, Father, if, if you do that, then the Egyptians will say you just brought them out of the wilderness to kill them. So at any rate, a little further on, God speaks to Moses after 3,000 of the Israelites have been killed, but the rest of them spared. Rest of them are spared. In response, God says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion upon whom I would have compassion. Think about that. Moses is up on the, the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. God has brought them out of Egypt. He sent the ten plagues against the Egyptians to get Pharaoh to finally let them go. God opened the Red Sea. God's given them pure water to drink, purifying the water that had been bitter God does all this for them. And here they are. What are they doing? Well, Moses is getting the law up on the mountain. They're worshiping this golden calf. And, and interesting, Aaron shows them the golden calf. Says, this is the God that brought, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Well, they had to make them with their own hand. How, how utterly ludicrous was that? Let me ask you a question. Would God have been just in wiping out all the Israelites at that occasion? Absolutely, yes. He would have. 
He would have. Why were they spared? Because of the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous. They had blasphemed His holy name. They they had done horribly in the sight of God by by entertaining this false worship. And and the, the first item was that they should worship the Lord their God only and worship no other gods. And here they are steeping themselves into idolatry. And so Moses gets a lesson. And God says to him, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And why why could they expect mercy? They couldn't expect mercy. But God, in his sovereign grace, gives them mercy. By the way, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but the fact of the matter is, how many of us in this building this morning deserve salvation from God? Not one of us. How many deserve the judgment and condemnation of Almighty God? All of us. But God, in His sovereign grace, has extended His mercy to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that He also gives another example here in verse 17, an example of hardening. And that example of hardening is is Pharaoh. And it says in, in verse 17, quoting the Old Testament, it says, even for this same purpose, I've raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. God speaks here about hardening Pharaoh, raising him up and hardening Pharaoh, and his sovereign decision to do so. Pharaoh was a wicked pagan king of Egypt. He ordered the death of all the Hebrew male babies throughout the land. And it was only because Moses' mother and father refused to go along with that that Moses was even spared. That's the kind of guy he is. He lifted himself up to be God. He, he wanted to worship himself. Also, as we find that as Moses is sent in to him with Aaron, and he's told, let, God says, let my people go. What was Pharaoh's reaction? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And on a couple of cases, okay, uh, I'll do it. But then he changes his mind. And we find that God sends ten plagues against the Egyptians and their false gods before Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go. And then after they've left the land, we find that as they head out towards the Red Sea, what's Pharaoh do? Pharaoh just says, hey, I shouldn't have let him go. So he sends his army out after the Israelites. And as they, the Israelites go through the, the Red Sea on dry ground, and the Egyptian army follows, God drowns the whole Egyptian army in that same water that he'd opened up for the Israelites to go through. That's the kind of person Pharaoh was. He, he was an ungodly pagan king of Egypt. And, and God would have been perfectly righteous in taking Pharaoh's life and sending him to hell the first time that he sinned or any time thereafter. But God didn't do that. God raised him up and allowed him to be the king of Egypt. God was patient. When it talks about him raising Pharaoh up here, it's not talking about giving him life. Rather, it's talking about giving him the position that he gave him to be king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh hardened himself. If you go back to Exodus, you find repeatedly it talks about Pharaoh hardening himself against God. And, and we also read there that God hardened Pharaoh. Pharaoh started out hard. He hardened himself. And then God, in his judgment, also hardened Pharaoh. It's a dangerous thing to defy God. When it comes to our approach to a righteous and a holy and sovereign God, we ought to throw ourselves on his mercy and ask for his grace and for his forgiveness. Pharaoh didn't do that. For a man to be arrogant and proud before God is a very, very dangerous thing. And God says, I raised you up, I made you king, and the purpose of it was so that I could show my power and my glory through you. God put up with his blasphemy. God put up with his rebellion. God put up with his mistreatment of the Israelites. But then God eventually brought his judgment upon him. And he did so in such a way that all the other nations saw it. And when, when Israel's ready to go into the promised land under Joshua, the people of Jericho are afraid because they heard what God had done to Pharaoh and they heard what God had done to Egypt. Years later, hundreds of years later, as we read over in 1 Samuel, we find that the, the, the Philistines were, were afraid of, of this true and living God because of what he had done to the Egyptians. But God raised up, elevated Pharaoh to the throne so that he could show his, so that he could show his power and his glory through his putting up with Pharaoh and his eventually dealing with him in judgment. He could have sent Pharaoh to hell, first time he ever sinned. But he allowed him to continue to have life, and then he demonstrated his power through him. The second question that comes up is in verse 19. First question, is, is God right, unrighteous? And what's the answer to that? Absolutely not. It can't be. There's no way that God can ever act unfairly, unrighteously, wrongly towards anyone who deserves nothing more than his condemnation and damnation. If God gives us grace, that's just something we ought to be thankful for, something we ought to be humbled by. Second question comes up in verse 19. Well, if it's a matter that, that God gives mercy to whom he's going to have mercy and he hardens whom he's going to harden, then verse 19, you'll say, why does God find fault with me? If, if God made me this way, God made me the way that I am, why does God find fault with me? If I've got problems and faults, it, it's because of God. It's God's fault. Have you ever heard that argument? We hear it all the time. People today are, are trying to escape their personal responsibility for sin by saying they are made the way that they are, and so that is an excuse. In fact, we have people scrambling today to find genes or things in the human brain that, that will explain uh, alcoholism, that will explain drunkenness, that will explain homosexuality, that will explain pedophilia, things like that. And, and basically it comes down to, well, I am the way that I am because God made me this way, and so it's, it's God's fault. Well, Paul could have answered that this way. He could have said, God didn't make you that way. God didn't make you that way. But God made Adam, and what kind of condition was Adam in? 
Adam was perfect. He was created in innocence. In fact, you go over and you read the evaluation of all God's creation at the end of Genesis 1, and what's it say? After all the cre- God looked at his creation and what? It was, it was very good. There, there was no sin. There were no sinners. But God gave Adam one prohibition. He said, Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat of it, you will die. And what happened? You know what happened. We're, we're, we're the proof of what happened. Adam ate. Adam died. He died spiritually. Something happened to his relationship with God, and he began to die physically. And spiritual and physical death came into the world at that time. People are born sinners. You and I are born sinners. We're born dead in trespass and sin. Why? Because God made us that way? No, because of Adam's rebellion against God, and we come into this world with a bent towards sin. And we have a bent maybe towards specific kinds of, of sin. But does that make our sin God's fault? Who's responsible for our sin? We're responsible for our sin. God's not responsible for our sin. But you know what? Paul doesn't answer that way. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give a logical explanation here and, and say that, you know, God didn't make you that way. This is all a result of the fall because of Adam's rebellion. You see how Paul does answer? He says, who are you, O man, to, to question God in this? You don't have the right. You don't have the authority to accuse and question God in this fashion. And that's something we ought to get a hold of this morning. You know, can we ask God questions? Sure we can. We come reverently, respectfully. There's all kinds of things we don't understand we can talk over with God. You see it in the Psalms all the time, right? But we ought to be careful in questioning God as far as questioning His character and questioning His motives and questioning the things that He does because our God is perfect and our God does love us. In fact, our God loves us so much that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world so that he would die on a cruel cross and pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and we can be given eternal life. Sinful men have no authority for, for questioning the working of almighty and sovereign and righteous and perfect God. And he gives the illustration of the potter and the clay. And uh, when you come to the potter and the clay, he says uh, that the potter starts with a lump of clay. And it's a uniform lump. And I've got to tell you here this morning, I am not a great appreciator of clay. Uh, Where I grew up, I grew up on was the, the old Clark Farm in western Pennsylvania. The guy that uh, developed the Clark Bar owned that property, but uh, I I live I moved there. Or my folks moved there after that had been sold and turned into a housing development, and houses all over the place. But the contractor that built it came in, stripped up all the topsoil, and sold it, and we were left for our house with brown clay, 
And I don't know if this was part of my dad's training program for me or, or just wanting to get certain jobs done, but he always had assignments for me that many, many times involved digging. And you know what that digging was in? Hard brown clay. And when it's dry and hard, it's horrible to dig in. The only thing digging in hard, dry clay is when you get a little moisture on it, and then what? You get wet, sticky, hard clay that sticks to your shovel. I'm not a great appreciator of clay. A couple weeks ago, we were down at my, my son's house in Virginia. He just moved into a new house down there, and he wanted to run some electricity from his house out to the shed about 30 feet away from his house. And Okay, we can do that while I'm here. And uh, so we, we had to dig and, and run some conduit there, run some wire through it and so forth. Only problem is he had a sidewalk in the way. Okay, no problem. We'll just dig down on each side of the sidewalk, and then we'll drive a piece of conduit through there or drive something through so we can get the conduit through. And so we dig down on each side of the sidewalk, and it's sand, and it's topsoil, and it's nice. Then we get under the sidewalk. Do you know what we found? Clay. Clay. Nasty clay. Only difference between Pennsylvania clay and Virginia clay is that the Virginia clay was red. I've still got stains on a pair of my jeans from that red clay. Uh, at any rate, we finally got it done. It took us hours to get through there. We got, I, I, I'm not a great lover of clay. Clay's common dirt. And, and it, it can be difficult dirt to deal with. But you know what? Somebody that's talented can take some of that clay, that worthless, yucky clay, and, and they can turn it into a beautiful vase, a beautiful piece of pottery, something really, really fantastic, and, and something that can be used for years to come. Although sometimes... The potter will take some of that yucky old clay and they'll make a, a garbage pot that's kind of plain and yucky. Or, or they'll make a waste container. Or they'll just leave some of the clay there. Are you going to find fault with that potter? Because he takes that clay, that same bunch of yucky clay, and he does one thing with some of the clay and he does something else with some of the other clay? No, you don't find fault with him. It's, it's his decision. It's his choice. The application of this is, you and I as human beings, we're like that clay. God begins with humanity, and we're all part of sinful clay. The whole lump is clay. He's not starting with people with a clean slate. He's starting with sinful, wretched humanity that's in rebellion against him and you know what god does with some of that clay you know what he does with some of that humanity he takes some of it and he he makes us into his children he saves us he redeems us he sent his son into this world so that it was possible for him to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us that's what god does but before we before god all men are evil and sinful and deserving only of condemnation. 
but God's perfectly righteous in visiting judgment on such men in any way at any time that he so chooses. He's also righteous in showing his glory to vessels of mercy. By the way, it talks here about, about vessels of dishonor prepared for, made, prepared for destruction, and, and we find that that term prepared, and I don't want to get real heavy here, but it's in the Greek middle voice, which is talking about the fact that th these are men that prepared themselves for destruction. It's not God that prepares people for destruction. Man prepares himself for destruction. But you move on, and it talks about the vessels of mercy, and it talks about us being made vessels of mercy. God does make us vessels of mercy. Men prepare themselves for destruction. God takes those who were prepared for destruction, and he has mercy and grace that he shows to us. And what a wonderful thing that is. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. He used Pharaoh to show us his power and his might and what he's able to accomplish on behalf of his people. And we find that every single one of us, when it comes to our relationship with God, we're all part of that sinful lump of humanity. And what, what do we need from God? We need God's mercy. I don't know about you, I don't want justice from God. You want justice from God? I hope not. Because if God gives us justice, he gives us what we deserve you know where we're all going to spend eternity? In hell. What we need from God is, is mercy. And aren't you glad that our God is a merciful God? Aren't you glad that we can be saved by grace through faith? Our God's a God of grace. Our God's a God of mercy. And our role is not for you and me to judge God and evaluate God. Our role is to accept God for who he is. As he reveals himself in Scripture and reveals himself and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're rejecting Jesus Christ, you've never taken him to be your Savior, don't expect to reject Jesus and still receive God's mercy. God's mercy is available only at one fount, and that fount is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to come to him. There's no unrighteousness with God. I hope that question's answered satisfactorily here for you in this passage of Scripture. And man is fully responsible for his own sin. And we've got to come to Jesus for mercy and for grace and forgiveness and for salvation. And when it comes down to the bottom line, God is sovereign and you and I are not. We accept God for who he is and we come to God on his terms. And the only term by, by which we can come to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we may ask the question, well, why doesn't, why doesn't God choose everybody? Why doesn't he call everybody? That's not up for you and me to challenge God on that. You know what the biggest question is? Why does God save anybody? And why did he save me? And why did he save you? Why does God love me? Why does God love you? He does. And, and by the way, you can know for sure this morning that you're a vessel of God's mercy. You can be a vessel of God's mercy, but you know what it comes down to as far as you're concerned? Responding to the love of God and the salvation by grace through faith that Jesus wants to give you this morning. You've got to repent of your sin 
and take Christ to be your own personal Lord and Savior. And when you do that, and you begin to learn more about just how much God loves you, it's something to wonder at. It's something to marvel at. Our God's a God that we wonder about and we, we're awed by. One of the great things we're awed by is His grace and His mercy and His love for you and me. Father, we thank You for who You are. And we confess sometimes we get a little proud, sometimes we get a little arrogant, and we think we know things better than you do. But, Father, we realize you are all-wise. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. And, and Father, you, you are a, a God of love and, and righteousness and mercy and grace, and how we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for each and every one in this building this morning who's, who's responded to your grace and mercy and received the salvation we can only have that way father said anybody that's playing games with you today and they've never responded to jesus and taken him to be their savior i pray you just show them their need to do that this morning you're the sovereign god and they need to humble themselves before you and we need to continue to live humbly before you lord help us to do that to glorify you in the way that we live our lives and serve you we pray in jesus name amen